as we open God's word for this special day and this special service. Let's talk to him and ask for his guidance in prayer. So would you reverently bow with me as we pray? Father in heaven, we're thankful that we've come together for this special service. It reminds us of your love, just how much love it took to give up your only son. That he came willingly and willingly laid down his life for us. We cannot find enough words to describe such love. Bless us with your spirit. Fill us with that love. Let us experience it completely. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 20. Love to hear those pages turning. We're not going to help you out with slides today. We're going to make you work for it. And learn to use our Bibles story is that there were ten plagues. Nine of them have passed. Every time Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go this time. Nope, changed my mind, not going to do it. Does it again and again and again and again. Finally, nine times have passed and we're still children of Israel, stuck in Egypt. God says, okay, we're going to pull out the ultimate weapon. We're going to have death. Firstborn are going to die. But if a sacrificial lamb which represents Jesus is sacrificed. The blood put on the doorpost of the dwelling. When the death angel passes by, the firstborn will live. And so, that's exactly what happened. The people got together. They killed the sacrificial lamb together as a group. As families, the blood was placed on the doorpost. That evening, there was wailing throughout Egypt as the Egyptians lost their firstborn. But in the Israeli homes, in the Jewish homes, there was peace for God had provided a way of salvation. God had provided a way for continued life. God himself, the Lamb, had provided the way out. What glory. What glory. Exodus chapter 12, the instructions 
I'm going to start with verse 11. You can read the complete chapter at home. Wear your traveling clothes as you eat this meal, as though prepared for a long journey. Wear your sandals and carry your walking sticks in your hands. Eat the food quickly, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt. I will kill all the firstborn sons and firstborn male animals in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. The blood you have smeared on your doorpost will serve as a sign. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Glory, hallelujah. Death has been defeated. We stand on the other side of the cross today knowing that Jesus is our salvation. Now, fast forward from Egypt several generations. I want you to now turn to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. So one passage in the Old Testament, now one from the New. Matthew chapter 14. And we'll begin reading with verse 17. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve disciples. As they were sitting around the table eating, Jesus said, The truth is, one of you will betray me, one of you who is here eating with me. Greatly distressed, one by one, they began to ask, I'm not the one, am I? He replied, it is one of you twelve, one who is eating with me now, for I, the Son of Man, must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. How terrible it will be for my betrayer, far better for him if he'd never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and asked God's blessing on it, and then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine, and he gave thanks to God for it, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, poured out for many, sealing the covenant between God and his people. I solemnly declare that I will, drink, will not drink wine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here they are. This is called the Last Supper the last time that they would ever be together for a Passover meal, one of the last times that they would be together at all. They were going into an uncertain future, knowing that Jesus would no longer be with them. Thaddeus would be axed to death in Persia. Thomas speared to death in India. Andrew crucified in Greece. Bartholomew clubbed to death. Peter famously requested that his crucifixion be upside down 
because he didn't want in any way to take away from his Lord's crucifixion. James's fate is recorded for us in the Bible, becoming the first martyr in A.D. 44. Of the 11 disciples faithful to Christ, excluding Judas, only John would die a natural death. And that only because he survived miraculously in an attempt to kill him in a pot of boiling oil. We look at the early chapters of Acts, the story of Judas' replacement, Mattathias. We think, what an honor to be chosen for that vacancy. What an honor indeed. He too gave up his life, the price of following Jesus. And here, this is the last supper, the final, the last opportunity for them to be together, a solemn moment. Now we turn to our theme passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this was anything but a solemn moment commemorating the gift of God through the Son, Jesus Christ. It was a sham. It was an embarrassment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to begin reading. Whoops. With verse 17. But now, when I mention this next issue, I cannot praise you, Paul writes, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First of all, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, There must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. Oh, what an indictment. We divide the church. We prove that we're right so that we can get recognized. Isn't that blasphemous? It's not the Lord's Supper you're concerned about when you come together. You're not coming together in unity. You're not coming together because of what Christ has done, you're coming together because you want to be recognized. For I am told that some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Is this really true? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace the church of God and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say about these things? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly do not. For this is what the Lord himself said, and I pass it on to you just as I received it on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This 
is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and you sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So if anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking from the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup unworthily, not honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. So they come together, not really to remember Jesus, not really to express their thanks for what God has done. They come together and they have a worship service. They are totally divided from one another. There's no unity. Let's have a religious service. It's okay. And Paul says, it's not okay. It's not at all okay. The divisions. That's what this book has been about. You remember in the earlier part of 1 Corinthians, we read about the divisions in the church. Well, there was one group that said, well, I like the way Peter presents the gospel. Another one, oh, no, Paul, no, Paul. Apollos. I am an Apollos man. I'd probably put myself in the fourth category, but it was just as bad. These were the people that said, well, I'm just a follower of Jesus. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? I like the way that sounds. That's a group I would have picked. But Paul says, they're all dividing the church, whatever category or group you put yourself in. They're just as bad as Seventh-day Adventists. We like to do that, too split the church up, divide it. It makes it interesting, doesn't it? So somebody put out a book on the gospel. Well, this is how Jack Sequera, former pastor at the City Church, sees it. This is how he, he tells it. Oh, but this is the way Morris Venden tells it over here, father of one of our former pastors. Oh, but, well, what does Des Ford say? Or what does this one or that one or another say? Well, let's just analyze it and examine it and write about it and divide over it. I mean, you think about Paul and Peter, two gospel writers, and the Lord himself, and those were the divisions with Apollos in the Corinthian church. You just have to say it just right. Parse the verb this way. I don't see it the way that you do. Let's come together so I can prove that I'm right. We divide ourselves over theology. Seventh-day Adventists like to divide themselves over food, of all things. We had a meal with some friends of ours, longtime acquaintances from back when we were in college. It's another pastoral couple. 
And we were just talking around the table about some of our early pastoral experiences. And as a young pastor's wife, this lady went to a church dinner. And she picked up something from the potluck table. And there was a dear saint in the church who saw what she got. And she was introducing her to someone else that was visiting at the church and said, oh, by the way, this is our pastor's wife. She's not going to heaven because she eats cheese. You can't make this stuff up. To which she replied, if they don't have cheese in heaven, I don't want to go. Now it's just a little bit ironic that today she can't eat cheese because she's lactose intolerant. I don't know. Years ago when I was a campus campus ministries director at Southern Missionary College, now Southern Adventist University, we invited Steve Marshall and David Meeker to come and speak. Those names may not mean a whole lot to you today, but they had come to know Jesus through the ministry of Glenn Kuhn. Some of you may still have that old book in your library, The ABCs of Prayer. It's a wonderful book. If you don't have it, go to a garage sale, a used bookstore, find it. It's a wonderful book to have. And I wanted to have Glenn Kuhn on campus, but our uh, college president uh, said, you can't have him. He thought he was too much of a country bumpkin to be on a college campus. But we were able to get David Meeker and Steve Marshall on campus. And they told a story. Steve told a story. I just couldn't believe it. So they were out presenting the gospel someplace and dear saint came up afterward and was having this discussion about food. And Steve said, well, that's interesting, but what do you do with what the Bible says when it says that Jesus cooked fish? Well, that offended her vegetarian gospel. And she thought about it for a moment and then responded, maybe Jesus didn't have all the light that we have today. (laughs) You, You can't make this stuff up. We divide over food. We divide over music in the church today. Well, if it wasn't written before the 1900s, we don't sing it. Some of you may want to head for the exits because I'm going to close the sermon with something that was written in the 1900s. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, in your worship services, you praise with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, we don't know exactly what that is today. It was a hymn then, what we call a hymn today. We really don't know. There's no way of knowing. 
But we do know that in the early church, they had three different ways of praising God, three different styles of music that were being used in the early church. And we tend to sit in judgment on other people that don't like exactly the same music that we do. And then there's the Bible itself. What translation should we use? Should it be the King James, the New Living, the Contemporary English, the English Standard Version? And if you don't use the one that I use, then you're not going to heaven. I have 38 translations of the Bible in my library. I have read through 37 of them completely. I want to assure you that even though some are better than others, I have found Jesus in all 37. Actually, all 38. I haven't finished the 38th yet, but Jesus is there. I have found everything that I need to have eternal life in all 37. I have found God's love for me in each one. There are some that I like better than others. But if you have one that I don't and it ministers to you, I'm not going to tell you that, boy, you know, the wording in that particular verse doesn't quite fit my theology, so I'm going to throw out the entire Bible. We just like to divide, whether it's food or music or translations or whatever. And Paul says, that's a problem. That is a problem. It says we are a unified church. That doesn't mean we all think alike, don't all look alike. No, we're a unified church, though. And if we're divided, we're part of the problem. We live in a world that is divided. The political divisions in this country, by everyone's account, are getting deeper and stronger by the hour. One party shoots across this way, the other party shoots across this way. And you know what? With all the people that claim to be Christians in our country, the United States, you would think that we could bring some unity to this country. But we're not. We're not. We're part of the problem. We're still shooting at each other over inconsequentials so that we can be right, so we can be recognized. Shame, shame, shame. Paul says the judgment of God is on you. And when you come to this service divided, you come unworthily. Now we like to jump to that part of the passage unworthily and then we just completely lose the context of what's being said here 
oh, well, if you've come here with adulterous thoughts, or did you murder somebody this week? Or did you steal something? Or did you slander somebody? Oh, you're coming unworthily. You can't come. You can't be forgiven. Sorry. You know, there's not a word in 1 Corinthians 11 about adultery or smoking or eating cheese or stealing or none of that. However you want to divide it up. Not one word. When he says you're coming unworthily, he says that you're coming divided. And that what makes it unworthy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we often misapply the words there that says if you destroy the body, God will destroy you. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, my paraphrase. And we like to couple that with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, that says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you need to take care of it. And if you don't take care of it, then 1 Corinthians 3 says that God's going to destroy you for destroying the body. I always used to puzzle over that. Didn't make sense. So, okay, you took cocaine and heroin and marijuana, whatever, you destroyed your body, and, and now God wants to make sure the, God, the job gets completed, so he's going to destroy you over? That didn't make sense. Until I realized that the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is not the human body, which is the temple of God. It is the body of Christ, which is the church. If you destroy the church of God, if you divide it, God's judgment is on you. That's right. That's what it's talking about here. If you claim to be in judgment upon everybody else, beware. God's judgment is on you. That's what he's saying in the context of 1 Corinthians 11. God looks to a church united with a united front sharing the good news about Jesus with neighbors and friends. And when they come, you know what they say? Wow, I like hanging out with those people. They love each other. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, that you... Love one another. There is unity in love. When we love God, we love others. Just imagine, in your mind's eye, a bicycle wheel. It has all of these spokes on it. In the middle, there's a hub. That hub for this illustration represents God. It represents Jesus. The closer you are to the hub as one of those spokes, the closer you are to each other. Out at the edge, out at the rim, you may be far apart. But when you get close to the center, you get closer and closer together. And you know, 
that's the way Jesus wants it to be? I may not like the food that you like. You may not like the music that I like. We may read different translations. We may listen to different speakers. And it's okay if you have preferences and if you like one more than another. But it's not okay to sit on judgment on others. Because this is the body of Christ. I want to share a song entitled, How Beautiful. How beautiful the hands that served the wine and the bread and the sons of the earth. How beautiful the feet that walked the long dusty roads and the hill to the cross. How beautiful how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. How beautiful the heart that bled, that took all my sin and bore it instead. How beautiful the tender eyes that chose to forgive and never despise. How beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of As he laid down his life, we offer this sacrifice that we will live just as he died, willing to pay the price, willing to pay the price. How beautiful the pride who waits for the groom with the light in her eyes how beautiful when humble hearts give the fruit of pure lives so that others may live how beautiful how beautiful how beautiful is the body of Christ. 
How beautiful the feet that bring the sound of good news and the love of the King. How beautiful the hands that serve the wine and the bread and the sons of the earth. How beautiful. How beautiful. How beautiful is the body of Christ. Father, as we dismiss, to wash one another's feet, a symbol of humility, let us humbly come before you and before others, setting aside our judgments and our opinions, looking only to you as our source of love. Let us love one another's, that it may be said of us, we are known as your disciples because of love. In Jesus' name.